This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm Rachel Neal. And I'm James Ramsey. For the second year in a row, WNYC is bringing you inside the Tribeca Film Festival with panels and discussions featuring some of the biggest names in films today. We'll hear from people like Spike Lee, Courtney Love, and Nate Silver about not only some of the biggest projects coming to movie theaters this year, but also what's going to be on television and on your smartphone. But first, what better way to kick off an indie film festival than with a panel about how indie films get made? Today we bring you The Producers. Okay. I can't really sing. I have to sing goofy in order to sing. Like, I have to sing stupid. Okay? Okay. You always heard the ones you love. The one you shouldn't hurt at all. Ah, oh, Blue Valentine. Right? And the thing about that movie is it just sounds so real. Like, that's the first date that I want. Yeah, it's emotionally gripping and it's honest. But there's also, just in terms of movie making, it seems so simple. I mean, there's no explosions or car scenes. It's like they just uh, turned on a camera and started filming this relationship. Right, and I was really surprised to find out that it took 12 years to make, 66 drafts of the script, and there was a ton of problems over the money. Hey, girl, that sounds like a lot of work (laughs) to get a movie made. That's a good one. Independent films can be just as hard to make as big Hollywood blockbusters, but without the big budgets. One day, the storm's gonna blow, the ground's gonna sink, and the water's gonna rise up so high, there ain't gonna be no bathtub, just a whole bunch of water. Visa the Southern Wild was shot on location in Louisiana and used an almost entirely local cast and crew. We'll hear from the producer of Beasts of the Southern Wild, along with the producer of Blue Valentine and others, on this panel, The Producers. Welcome, everybody. We have a great group of panelists today. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with Olivia Wilde as the famous and beautiful oh, thank actress. You. <laughs> that thank you. Is also insanely uh, smart, and that's her little well, well-kept secret, but... Um, <laughs> She is here at the Tribeca Film Festival with, um, this is not your first produced movie because we're going to count your documentaries as well. Oh, um, thank you. (laughs) Um, But um, she's here with, um, I'm sorry. Meadowland. Thank you. Don't worry, there's lots. Um, And you are probably very familiar with our other panelists' movies. We have Carly Hugo here, who, um, Bachelorette, obviously a big, fun movie that uh, everyone... And then we're going to show all, also all of your clips of your recent movies, um, so I'm just going to throw out your highlights. Yeah. And then um, Alex Orlovsky, am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> um, Alex has done... He has produced um, The Place Beyond the Pines with Bradley Cooper and Ryan Gosling. And Eva Mendes, and he also did Half Nelson. I think you have at least three Oscar nominations from your films, if I'm not mistaken. Two? Okay. <laughs> Ryan for, um, uh, for Half Nelson. For Half Nelson. For Blue exactly. Yeah. Um, and he also did Blue Valentine, yes, of course. And, um, and then we have Matt Parker, who um, has produced many movies with 
Carly. So um, there's a lot of overlap with them. Um, he had Beasts of the Southern Wild, which was nominated for a Best Picture two years ago. I think so. Yeah, that was um, that was the uh, an incredible journey that movie from tiny movie to you know a big Oscar contender. Um, Maybe let's start with Alex because I think that um, the wolf pack is really uh, indicative of the constraints that indie producers face now. Like, how do you even go in and pitch a move like to financiers to get financing for a movie like that? I, like, what's your pitch? I'm going to make a movie about these this family on the Lower East Side that hasn't left their house in however many years and watches movies all day. Absolutely. Um, it is very indicative because the director didn't ask for anyone's permission and basically did it herself for a number of years. And we actually, you know, I mean, documentaries are different from features in that, you know, she shot this for four and a half years and it, you know, premiered at Sundance this year. We got involved probably, we got actively involved, I'd say, a year ago. And we're sort of, we're helping from like a consulting standpoint, gave them editing space, gave them a little bit of money. But it was, it was a project that had been out there and I think a lot of people in the industry had seen it, but it just hadn't sort of hit critical mass yet, I would say. And, and it's actually a good lesson for, I think for directors and producers that there's like, there's a right time for a project where it's sort of all the pieces, you know, they may be apparent to you, but they might not be apparent to the world at large or to the industry. And sometimes you have to just kind of keep scrapping until that one, you put that one other block in place where people look at it and say, oh, this makes sense. Like, I'll get behind it now, you know? So. Um, okay. Yeah, and, and now, indie film producing, unlike um, regular film, produ studio film producing, I shouldn't say regular film, but studio film producing, it is something that there are like so few guarantees that this will ever, you know, be distributed in a platform where people will see it. So what makes a, you all seem like sane people, a sane person pursue this, you know, line of work? Anybody? <laughs> Olivia, you don't have to. Right, I, I didn't mean to. Um, well, I would say that you know once you spend a, a bunch of your life making movies, you learn a lot of lessons and you feel that you understand the process and you feel you know how things should be done and then you really want to facilitate the good stories. I mean, that's how it came to me is that I had been working for 12 years as an actress, learned from some really fantastic producers. And uh, I felt that it was time that I use those lessons and turn it around and try to help someone I really respected, in this case, Reed Morano, our director, make this film in her directorial debut. Um, but it, it uh, is something that now that I truly understand, having executive produced before, but now having truly produced and understanding how difficult it is, now it's something that I want to continue because now I can't help be that pushy and nosy when making a film. <laughs> it's right. like once you understand that you can actually affect change and you can actually help the right decisions get made and, and push good movies through and find them financing and stand up for them and fight for them, then you really want to do that because there are so many stories out there that should be told that just need 
uh, that last element needs someone to really fight for them. And um, so I, I found that to be a worthy effort and something I can't wait to continue to do. And I'm just curious, who are some of the producers you had worked with in your 12 years of acting that really, like, sort of you learned a lot from or influenced you or, you know, you um, take a lot from today? Well, I mean, having worked with all different types of filmmakers and, and their teams, you know, I think having worked with everyone from uh, Spike Jones and Nick Cassavetes to um, John Favreau and, and learning different things from these directors and the people who are helping them make their films and understanding that, you know, on the set of her, Megan Ellison was really just allowing her filmmaker, in that case Spike, to make the film he wanted to make. And I watched her very closely, and I, I noticed the differences between her and maybe some other producers I'd worked for. And uh, I, I just feel like I picked up little things along the way. Also in television, which, you know, the producers are a huge part of television because they are the consistent part. Your director is always changing. Your producers, who are often your writers and showrunners as well, are people who are possibly spending five years with you. So I had a lot of time to learn about nuts and bolts of producing from them and how to really um, handle a crisis. <laughs> okay. And Carly, um, you have done both comedy, which a lot of people don't think of when they think of indie movies. They think of indie movies, dramas, you know. I've um, done my fair share of those. <laughs> one of the most successful independent comedy movies when you, you know, count those gigantic VOD numbers right. that, um, you know, Bachelorette really changed uh, sort of the conversation about how a movie could be distributed. Mm -hmm. But you also, that clip um, from Mother of George, you know. And that's actually, yeah, that's a film called Five Nights in Maine that we shot in October. Oh, okay. And so you guys are the first people to see anything besides the... I was going to say, that's, this is an upcoming movie. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, uh, very dramatic. Very and dramatic, yes. How do you sort of straddle both worlds? Well, I think that, and Matt and I together, we have worked on a large range, like you said, comedy. We the majority of the films we've done have been the million dollar drama films, but we find that the story is the same and, and being able to champion the story and filmmakers, whether it's a comedy or a documentary, it's at the heart of it, it's the same sort of stuff. So I think as your question earlier about why would people be so insane as to do this, I think that the ability to feed our ADD of wanting to work on a million different things at once, it's really exciting to be able to work on a comedy and at the same time be developing a film about grief, which is what Mother uh, Five Nights in Maine is about. So I think that I think that the skills are all the same, whether it's a documentary, which we've also been doing a lot of lately, or or a big comedy. You're, you're championing a filmmaker and trying to help them get their story out there. And how about, do you find it more receptive um, in terms of like financiers or whatever, when it's comedy versus drama, or? They're all pretty hard to get financiers. Yes. <laughs> how many um, doors, I mean, <laughs> is a door like slightly ajar if it's like comedy versus? Uh, well, I think that Bachelorette was a special case that also had a very high level cast for the budget level it was. So right. that allowed, foreign sales to be higher, it allowed people to take the chance on Leslie Headland, who wrote a very dark script. Right. We, we were well, making... she was Harvey Weinstein's former yeah. assistant. So. <laughs> and we were making that right, it was the summer after Bridesmaids, and, and it was just the mantra was, this is, this is not Bridesmaids, and, and making sure that 
everyone knew that we wanted to support her in making this really twisted view of female friendship um, and allowing her. So I, I actually think Bachelorette is, is very indie in its own way. I think it yeah. has commercial aspects and it has the, the fancy, shiny actresses, but... It did commercial business. It did commercial business. Which is like a difference, like the, you know, Beast of the Southern Wild, same thing. It's like, it's an indie movie that did commercial business, you know, because it, it happened to have that sort of critical, you cannot miss this movie. Um, had it not been nominated for Best Picture, it may not have been seen by, you know, it would definitely not have been seen by as many people yeah, as it, it was seen it up by. Quite a bit when it got nominated. But it, it had won Sundance and things like that that helped it get to that point. It had a, a nice rise up to that point. Now, um, you obviously are starting to do a lot more documentaries, correct? What is it about the documentary field right now? It just seems particularly explosive. Um, I even think I've heard of like the Wolf Pack. Um, people are talking about buying the feature remake rights for the Wolf Pack. Um, that's become sort of this like hot Yep. New area of docu like documentaries. They have such great stories that people now can just buy. A, you know, Hollywood can buy a documentary. They have a blueprint for a movie's narrative, and then they can make it. But documentaries, I think, also there's just so many more places to show them now. Thank God for Netflix and all these places. But you know, is this something that like you can just make a full career doing nothing but documentaries and for for. For Carly and I, the, the, um, the documentary thing, I had done one small documentary uh, several years ago. It was super hard. Um, and, but recently, uh, we joined forces with Graydon Carter, who's the editor of Vanity Fair. Sure. And um, he had this uh, Nora Ephron documentary that uh, he was getting set up with HBO. And he was like, do you want to produce it with us? And I was like, sure. You know, HBO. Directed by your son. Yeah. It's, uh, um, but you know. The difference in that and like the other one I was talking about is the budget. I mean, the HBO documentaries, we're on our second one now. They have a really nice, healthy budget. Um, we can pay crew well, you know, uh, we can pay ourselves well. Um, so it's made it a lot uh, easier for us to do documentaries. Uh, I think, you know, like working on a documentary for six years, um, you know, that's usually like the two people doing it. It's super tough. and. Um, if somebody doesn't come and, you know, at the end, like Alex was talking about, and rescue them, you know, that doc might never get finished or make it to the festivals or whatever. Um, so, you know, there's like, uh, I don't know, there's, I think, two worlds of documentaries. They're like the, you know, Alex Gibney's, and then there's the people on the ground really uh, making these uh, real stories, you know, that how aren't many, like bio How many movies does Alex Gibney produce in a year? Like, uh, <laughs> like 20. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like he's like a, the Rembrandt. I, I think there's going to be like a whole group of people doing it under him, but it's like, I feel like every three months there's an Alex Gibney. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Definitely. Not that that's a bad thing, but... <laughs> um, so, um, now, Olivia, um, you are probably the only one here, I'm guessing, that appears in the movie you produced. Is that correct? Unless you <laughs> guys have true? cameos that I don't know about. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, which was uh, my original way that I discovered the material was as an actress. Uh, read the script and thought it was sensational and met Reed Morano and was completely blown away by her and uh, wanted to help get it made. And so I asked if I could join them. There was a guy named Matt Tauber already on as a producer. 
And I said, can I please join you? And, and uh, I, I'll do whatever I can to help get it through and get it made. And it was really challenging. And it's interesting from an actor's perspective, seeing the financing process, which these guys know very well. But once you see those lists <laughs> with all the actors <laughs> listed yeah. by value, and you're like, oh, where am I? Where? Oh, gosh, just down here. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it, at times it was really infuriating. And, and I was very lucky to be a part of a project that had high standards for the type of collaborators we wanted and financing producers, and we weren't willing to completely sell our souls. Right. Um, and so we waited, and, and we found a tremendous company named Braun out of Canada, a guy named Aaron Gilbert and Margot Hand, who's now split off, and she's an independent producer now. But they let us do what we wanted. And yet, you know, there's still the realities of, of casting that, you know, they said, we really want to let you cast this unknown person, but we would love it if you would consider these people. And I, I did find it interesting to watch the process of financing a female-driven film starring a woman, directed by a woman who's a first-time director. You know, there's a lot of obstacles there, not just the gender situation, but also first-timers. And um, it, you know, we had to find someone who really trusted us, and it was illuminating. Had you done a, another movie with Reed? I'd never worked with Reed. Oh wow! But I, she, she's this incredible cinematographer who's got such a great yeah. reputation. And now I believe that more directors should come from the cinematography school. I mean, it makes so much sense. The extraordinary thing about her is that she, because we had so little money, she decided to both direct and DP the film. She also operated. Oh my God. So <laughs> she's tough. She's and very tough. it really, it really, you know, I'd worked with great DPs before. Um, ben Richardson, actually, who shot Beasts, uh, did Drinking Buddies, which I was in and executive produced. And he's an, also an amazing DP who's really active and a part of the process. And Reed, as the director, cinematographer, and operator, created a very different environment on set. And we were able to. Um, just in terms of logistics, also save money because of time. Because that lag time in communication between director and DP was not <laughs> happening. She was making, just making decisions. And also creating this incredibly intimate bond with the actors. And we had some child actors as well, so that was really helpful. You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from the producers. Talk about the finances, anyone here. What do these movies that you've been involved with cost to make? What did they sell for at a festival? Or, you know, can you give a sense of the finances? Because I think every, most people just think, like, whatever the box office is is what, yeah. you know. And I, love, I love seeing people will give me sort of, like, pitches with movies of mine in the comps with just completely wrong numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, this movie needs this much money. And I'm just like, A, no, B, take that out. Like, so, yeah, it's always very deceptive because... And, and I think the trades, like, inflate numbers... Whenever you see Sundance, it, it happens on occasion. Not Sometimes, me, of course, but <laughs> yeah, I've been, at the festival circuit, though, yes. I will say for sure that yeah. I see it. I see it happen all the time. It, all the time. No, this, just the festival announcements when it yeah. says a movie yeah. sold for seven figures. Right. Generally, you know, it take means five hundred thousand dollars. But I mean, I think it's a good time 
afford to make sort of million dollar films right now with the advent of all these new buyers and you know I, like all the, the VOD is sort of bringing back what DVD lost um, right. Netflix Amazon there's just it's competitive and our attorney who probably repped all of everyone else's movies or something <laughs> said that do you all have the same attorney Andre de Rocher sells he handles the distribution legal for a bunch of these movies, and he was said that a huge number of his films from Sundance came out in the black. But they're all sort of same size, you know, in this sort of space. And I think it's great that that's a model that's sort of working right now, but I think as a producer it becomes a speculative thing because you're never going to get paid on one of those movies. You get paid if it sells. It, it bleeds into like the sustainability of yeah. being an independent producer. Yeah. It's a very if you like gambling, then independent producing is a good line of work for you. <laughs> um, because that's kind of what it is a lot of times. But it's like placing two-year bets, you know. Um, and when it's when it works, it's great. Um, when it doesn't work, it can be really hard. Sort of going off what Olivia was saying about finding financing for those smaller character-driven. Mm -hmm female dramas, Five Nights in Maine that Matt and I produced with, that was the clip, um, first time female fil filmmaker, and it's, like I said, it's a, it's a, David Oyelowo plays a young man who loses his wife, and he... Was it before Selma, by the way? It was before, we shot, we shot two weeks after Selma, okay. so he was um, in the process of starving himself during our movie. <laughs> Um, but it's great you got him like when he's well he's he a producer it, he's a producer on the film he actually was on board he was attached for a long time he was attached yeah. before we were um, we got the project um, some friends of ours a wonderful production designer Chad Keith and Bradford Young who's a DP who did Selma they were originally brought on the project and they brought it to Matt and me and at that point David was already on board and that was about two years before we shot so he had been very involved. Um, the whole time, but t we brought the film basically to everyone for financing, hope hoping to find one or two people or companies to come in and, and do it together, and it was just, it was too difficult, so we, and it was just pass, 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 which is, it's hard to then be pitching knowing that people aren't responding to it, it makes it a really, just, discouraging but we had to stop start from scratch and really try to figure out the best way of doing it which in our case was to assemble a lot of grants we got a great grant from San Francisco Film Society and Cinereach we actually just got a Tribeca All Access grant um, nice. because we're still raising money um, and we ended up assembling small investors in the $25,000 a piece range which right. means now we have however many people that is a lot of people to manage but it's a it just is what it is and that is not a model that is easy to because then the film becomes about financing which a, is a lot of the small dramas like mother of george that we did also is an african african immigrant drama was oh. like half grants uh, the ford foundation came in and gave us a really sizable one but they don't give to narrative films anymore but you know it, like if you're making a a million dollar and below drama you're like relying heavily in three you know half almost uh, of the financing it's going to be grants it's just like including kickstarter in there but it, it just has to be it's uh, really Which means difficult that the equity portion is lower so there are some benefits to it we can make that money back quicker on a on a sale but okay <laughs> now one of the things i think is nice all four of you are new york based correct 
I mean, is there even such a thing as an LA-based um, independent producer? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people are moving. I think yeah, New York's got the. You guys have New York has the stranglehold on the indie, <laughs> but maybe um, uh, and such a great venue that Tribeca provides for independent filmmakers. Um, I think that in New York, independent filmmakers and producers also get more respect than anywhere else. There's, you know, um, do you find that? Do you find that when you, you know, are elsewhere? I don't know. I think when I take the meetings in LA, I feel like there's a little bit of a like, how do you guys live there? Like, how do you, how do you pay your rent? Like, right. there's a little bit of that, which I actually think kind of plays nicely. I mean, I think that this, the New York film community is incredibly close and, and whatever the opposite of backstabby is. I feel like very, <laughs> I feel very comfortable like sending projects around and I feel like in general we're all sort of helping each other up. Right. I don't always feel that in LA. Um, LA is a little bit like the player. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great movie. That movie was <laughs> sure was. So we've a part of that. <laughs> it, it seems as relevant today as ever. Um, yeah, so, so you find a, a camaraderie here. I love it. And I think the crews are great here. I think this is a, New York's a great place to make independent films. Um, I mean, I think in terms of just the quality of, of crew that you can access on a smaller film, I don't think you can really touch it anywhere else in the country, and I've, I've tried, you know, with really, you know, difficult results. Right. Um, the tax credits are still... Tax credits are great, and I just think that... Um, I, although TV's had an effect on crew, because I think so many people just work on TV shows now, and yep. you, can, you can't really blame them to be honest. So I think that availability is a little different from what it used to be just because there's so much consistent TV work. Um, but yeah, I love making movies here. And it's Olivia, great. where did yours shoot? Here. Okay, in the city. In the city, a little bit in New Jersey, but here. Okay. I went to your production offices. You did? Yeah. <laughs> they were very fancy. They were. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and it's like you share the crew. Like their production accountant was a production accountant in one of my films. So I had to go there to, you know, to wrap some stuff up. And it's like that's also great. It's always there is a real sort of family feeling, and I think an awareness of oh that just shot. I've heard that's good. Oh this is happening. Yeah. You know, so it's 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 really an enjoyable sort of family to be part of. I think. What would you give as advice to a would-be independent film producer coming up? <clears throat> Let's start with you, Matt, because... Uh, I don't know, it's uh, like, I always tell people that come into the office, they're starting out, like, concentrate on story, like, when you're making your first film or producing your first film, film or even directing it, like, I think a lot of people get uh, caught up in, like, you know, the best camera and uh, lighting and everything, and now that with the, you know, with the um, advances in digital technology, like, D, they have these DSLRs that you can shoot a whole feature on that are small and you don't don't require that much lighting and you can really you know for like five hundred thousand dollars shoot a really good movie. Um, you can be nimble and uh, you know, but it's about getting the coverage and telling the story, really, and uh, and not wasting a lot of your time all the day um, with I think on a on an entry level movie with lighting and things like that. Not um, cast either, not a cast, like that's not the biggest consideration. Like, can I get a name person? That's a big consideration, but, uh, you know, I, I, just in terms of, like, uh, being able to get as much story on the screen, um, right. you know, use these things to your advantage. Like, uh, and it depends on what kind of movie 
somebody aspires to make. I mean, that's also a question I ask people is just like, what kind of producer do you want to be and what kind of movies do you want to make? Um, because different answers, I would give different advice to different people, but it is pretty amazing that you don't have to ask permission anymore. Like you can't take a 5D and go make a movie and no one can tell you not to. You know, it's, it means you may forgo lights, you may cast, you know, friends and family, but I also, I mean, I think working on other people's films and working for people who create work that you admire is really important because that's also where you get, you know, that's your crew. And then I've seen it so many times, people are like, oh, I'm going to make a short film, but I'm going to ask these five people from this movie I just did to help me out for, for free. And they will because now they know you and like you. And, you know, that's, that's the way a lot of careers begin. Um, if you want to make studio movies, move to L.A. You know, I mean, or like make bigger movies, like, and I give people that advice all the time. Right. You know? Yeah. And how about you, Carl? I think that there's, I think it's very important to be fearless and really to go out there and, and like Alex said, make something. Don't just sit around for two years worrying about things. I do, I think it's, it's also very important, you had said at one point, not having cast. I think that it's also important if you're going to spend someone else's money to understand that the way that the marketplace right now is right now, you, you, cast is a factor. Not saying that there are very big exceptions to the rules, and we've done exceptions to that rule. But I also think that you have to, when you're starting out, like always be thinking of the end goal. Where do you want this? Which distributors do you like? Which distributors do you think that this would be the right fit for? Like keeping an eye on the final product is is very important. And I think that as producers, it's important for us to know that world for the director so that they can relax into, as I said, story and, and into the more artistic side of things. And we can sort of help guide them. And But I think for beginning producers, I just, just go make stuff. Just do it. Just do it. And, and working on a short film, it's the same skills. Working on a small documentary to a large comedy, it's the same scheduling problems and the location fell through and we need insurance. Like, it's the same... Same process. Yes. How many movies have you been a fully uh, producer credit on? At full this producer point? credit? Hmm. 10 to 15? I don't know. Something like that. Like 10? And you're like 10. 25 years old, right? I'm 30. <laughs> <laughs> you're all like 25. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to add to that, and in terms of, of the casting part of the process, uh, from an actor's perspective as well, it really, it it's a good idea to get creative with the way you make offers and also not immediately um, surrender when, uh, let's say, you're making a film and the male role is not as big as the female role and the financier says, well, if we bump up this male role, we might get a bigger male actor and then we can make this movie. I, I think it's really worth resisting that and sticking to your guns and telling the story you really want to make. And if you can't get a, an actor to accept that small role, they're not right for that role, don't change your story to try to beg an actor to be a part of it. If it's a good story, they're lucky to be a part of it. And I think in terms of how offers are made, just understanding that process, that sometimes the agents aren't delivering that material how it, in the way that it should be delivered. Sometimes the lookbooks you've created aren't getting to the actors. Sometimes the letters the directors are writing aren't getting there. So as a producer, really working hard to build this cast that will make the, get the movie made, just following through on that and making sure that you allow the, the actor to really understand 
what they're being offered and who, and who the director is. I just can't tell you how many times I've passed on something because it just wasn't presented to me in the right light and then later seeing it being made and being like, wait, what? What is that? I didn't know it was that. <laughs> so, and the, or directors work see me and say, "Did you get the letter I wrote or the lookbook I sent?" I'm like, "I don't know. That never got to me." So, just from the producer's standpoint, I really tried to keep that in mind when we were making our offers, and it really helped to follow through and try to communicate directly as much as possible. I like this point of sticking to your guns, um, and especially about like who's right for a role. Um, I have this great anecdote. I was talking to um, the producer of Winter's Bone a few years ago, and they were having a terrible time getting the financing for that movie. Um, and the potential financiers wanted, okay, if you can get Britney Spears or Miley Cyrus, <laughs> you know, southern actresses with a name. Not, none of this Jennifer Lawrence crap. Um, and they stuck to their guns. They wanted somebody who could act, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the rest is history for Jennifer Lawrence. But wow. um, I think Britney Spears would have been fabulous. In she <laughs> would have, skinning the squirrel and everything. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you think of, like, these, these movies, and um, you can spot when a concession was made. I, and I won't name movies, but, like, you can always spot when that concession was made for a name actor that maybe isn't right for the part. I, I think that's, that's a really good point. And I think people forget to be patient mm. when you're making offers and just when you're trying to get a film cast. Um, and I think it's one of the hardest things, especially as a producer, when you have a director who's so determined to get this film made. And sometimes you're catching a lot of heat from said director. And sometimes, just for personal reasons, you're like, I need to make this this summer or else. And you'll compromise on casting or just not, you know, not really think something through. And, and I think a movie lasts forever, and if you make a casting compromise or any other kind of compromise to get it made, you're going to be watching that film in 10 years and thinking about that compromise. And, um, I mean, Blue Valentine is a, that we, I personally tried to get that movie made for five and a half years, Derek for 10, and we had so many people pass on it. Wow. Who passed? I just mean, curious. Really? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> Britney Spears. Britney, we probably did offer it to her, but like, um, I mean, I, 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 this is, I probably shouldn't say any of this stuff, so I'm not going to, but. There's no reporters here. Hundreds of people, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, literally like 30, 40 actors, yeah. um, ranging from ideas that seem good to ideas that I tell people, and they're just like, what? You gotta be kidding me. And we almost made the movie in a couple of those versions. I mean, it was, but Derek was a first time director, no one, and I, and I actually remember taking to an actress's apartment to her, to her doorman, like VHS tapes of like his short films, his commercials, like all these things to try to sort of convince. And this goes back to what you said also. It's like, especially when you can't get a face-to-face -face meeting between a filmmaker and an actor, it's, it's sort of translating why something special can be really hard. Yeah. But I think just like wait, be patient. Your projects will get made when the time is right and don't make the wrong version of it just so you can say you made a movie. You know? Something else about the timing, which is not related to that, but related to compromising on timing, I think it's also, it's important to also not rush your film for a festival date just because yes. you happen to be Great point. almost done and you've got 
four weeks left till Sundance, and yep. you just throw something out there. I think that's something that we've seen before, we've done before, and you always regret that you didn't have that you didn't take that extra time because, like Alex said, films last forever, and that's something that we've been talking a lot with our directors about. Is like patience is key because if you rush to make a movie but it comes out soon, rush to make it soon and it's not the thing that you want it to be, it's not going to be the calling card you need it to be for your next film and for the next and the next. So I think it's something that, as producers, we have to also sort of temper, manage, not expectations, but manage that timeline and allow the director to understand that there's not only one festival. There's not only one summer to make your movie in. How about um, Olivia? Speak to the dearth of female directors, even in the independent uh, film space. Well, I don't know if there's actually a dearth. It just feels like it, because so few of their movies get made. Right. And they're certainly much better than the studio. I mean, there's far more female directors working in the independent film space than there are in the studio film space, where it's like, yeah. really. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems that way from my perspective. and I. I, I wonder if it does have to do with how difficult it is to get their movies made. Um, I think as a producer, you're taking on an extra challenge. I think that it is changing. But, you know, it, it starts from the audience really demanding those films and supporting those films, and then the numbers line up and people will make those films. Uh, but I, I was actually shocked at how, even though our director was a very accomplished cinematographer and very well respected within the industry, still seemed to be having a tougher time because there was a sense of like, well, won't it be hard for her? And it was like, <laughs> what, why? What? She's handled, she's, she's handled very, you know, incredible directors and she's been on sets and she has so much experience, more experience than some of these first-time directors who are writers who've actually never worked on a set, and they're getting the opportunity. So I, I think people are afraid of taking that risk because, you know, as everyone's been saying, it's a gamble. It's a huge risk. And you do have to remember you're spending someone else's money. That's a thought I had many times throughout the processes. I was getting frustrated, and I have to remember I'm gambling with someone else's money here. I have to understand why they're being cautious. And it is a lot about handling their fears as well as your director's fears and insecurities, and making sure that uh, everyone is maintaining you know, their patience and, and confidence. Even after you get rejected from a festival, or before that stage, every actor passes. Then you actually make the movie. Then you get rejected everywhere. And maintaining everyone's, I've found a lot of producing, is <laughs> maintaining everyone's enthusiasm. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and that is an important role. So. But in terms of, of the there the female directors, I don't know. I mean, I, I I think there's a lot of them out there, and a lot of them in film school right now, and and it's up to producers to really champion their work, and I'm excited to do that. Well, I would love to hear each of your future projects that you're <coughs> just starting to work on as producers. Um, Carly, well, uh, like Matt said, we have a couple documentaries that are in post or shooting right now. Um, the film that I'm very, very excited about right now is uh, we have a film called Faith, which is based on a New York Times bestseller from a couple of years ago. And it is a big, meaty family drama, and really excited about 
adapting it and getting it out there. Is it, um, what, what's the plot line? Is it? The uh, plot is it's about a family in Boston in 2001 and. Your hometown. In Boston, yeah. Um, and, <laughs> and the uh, oldest brother in the family, who is actually going to be played by Chris Cooper, um, he is a Catholic priest and he's falsely accused of molesting a child. And the, the film is told through the younger brother and sister's point of view, figuring out whether or not he's innocent and how, and really reconciling how do you trust someone who is your older brother, the person you looked up to your whole life. What do you do then if you don't believe in him? And so it's sort of the family dynamic, how it shifts it and changes it. And who's going to direct it? We don't know yet. Oh. We're working on it right now. Yeah. <laughs> Olivia, do you want to get into directing or is producing? Um... Yeah. I'll I can send you the gig. book. Yeah, make the deal right now. We have to exchange cards at the end. Now, Alex, what have you got cooking? Um, I have, I'm waiting for Mike Cahill's next script, which I'm excited about. Um, who directed I Origins in Another Earth. So I should have that hopefully in a week or two. And that's a, it's a big science fiction movie. So that will not be an independent budget? Um, well, I mean, the definition of an independent film, I think, continues to expand. So. Yeah. He's great. I, yeah. I, I was on a panel with him recently, and he, oh, cool. um, he uh, I think he's like the next Darren Aronofsky. He's that got is... that sort of... Um, that is my hope. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's about, what, about, about what would happen if humans and aliens intera you know, interacted, but not from a sort of horror movie alien perspective, I think what you traditionally see, but something maybe a little more humanist. I mean, the same way that he's explored other big ideas through kind of more human, len uh, more human lens. Um, but I think also, you know, in the sort of, Looper, District 9, Vane, is the hope. We'll see. I'll tell you once I've read the script. Okay. <laughs> um, and then working with a director named Charlie McDowell, who did The One I Love. Yeah. Uh, that was at Sundance last year. Um, that script's called The Discovery. And it's, it's about a scientist who proves that the afterlife exists mm. and the societal consequences of that. Um, and then I have a movie in post that Gerardo Naranjo directed, stars Dakota Fanning, Zoe Kravitz, bunch of other great young actors were trying to finish editing. So. Nice. Sounds like you're busy. Matt? Um, we're finishing a Mission to Mars movie uh, with Mark Strong and Luke Wilson right now. Um, we're finishing the visual effects on that. And uh, one of the cool things that we're developing right now is a stop motion animation feature, um, which uh, there's a reason why people don't do them <laughs> on a low budget, um, but we're going to try. The, and, uh, no, that is like, it, it is the single most expensive version of animation, correct? And slow, yeah. yeah. I don't know, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but um, it's, the script got into the Sundance Writers Lab, and we're supposed to hear it on the Director's Lab any day now, um, and it's one of the first animation, pro animated projects to go through the, the labs, um, so, uh, you know, Hopefully in the next year we'll start uh, prepping that and shooting. Um, we're also developing like a puppet movie um, <laughs> that's really fun. Uh, and it, like in the past year, we've really been trying to like uh, generate a lot of ideas in house, and then kind of like find filmmakers for that. And um, 
build them in-house, which has been a lot of fun and new for us. So. You're listening to Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from the producers. And Olivia, you're always busy. Well, I, uh, I'm producing a film called FML, uh, which uh, a great new director who's a documentarian named Amy Rice is going to direct. And it's me and Jenny Slate, and we're casting the other parts now. And it's a great, weird girl comedy. So we're working on getting that made, and it's, it's a challenge. It's a very different challenge than Meadowland being a female-driven drama, female-driven comedy. It's just mm -hmm. a, a different thing, so I'm learning about that now. Why? You'll probably still hear, can, can she do this? Will she be okay? <laughs> <laughs> Progress is slow. <laughs> it's happening, it's happening. Um, now, do we take questions from the audience? Now, I'm sure you guys, after all of this uh, you know, discussion, have plenty of questions. Does anybody? Oh, boy. Where do, how about you? Oh, wait a second. We're going to get you a microphone. I'm part of your family because I share legal. Andre, I have Evan <laughs> Krauss of Greg Krauss as my lawyer. So how do I get a, a script to you guys um, for consideration as producing? Good question. Through Andre? Sure. Okay, I'm Barbara. Don't forget. All right. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure to see half the panel, or more than half, women, because I remember when they were not there. They were just possibly a moderator, but um, now we have women producers, and it's terrific. And NYWIF, New York Women in Film and Television, is um, a wonderful place for women to be groomed, and um, I'm a NYWIF member. So cool. thank you for today. Thank you. And I think Tribeca Film Festival, we really have to give them a shout out because this year I think the theme is women power. Sorry, guys, but uh, <laughs> it's about time, right? Yeah, I think there are over 30 female directors in the festival this amazing. year. That's amazing. Yeah, very cool. Let's see. Um, who else has a question? I'm definitely a, a different generation from everybody here, so I, I'm studio-based in the sense I know all these stories about Dino De Laurentiis and these guys that go right to studio. Am I right? With all the dot-com billionaires out there, nobody is the big money bucks daddy who wants to give you guys money because evidently you guys make some don't make enough money, so they just go right... Because you've been talking about studio... Not studios, but uh, grants and HBO and independent. So there are no individual rich men who will give money or women no. to independent film. Why well, is... Not true. Well, Megan Ellison, but she's a yeah, there's, woman. Yeah, there's, but there's a lot. Yeah. There are plenty. Um, but they give... I mean, A, they have advisors who tell them, you know, to do things in a logical manner. And B, <laughs> you know, so no one's ever just... I mean, it happens rarely, but I mean, and um, people give money to projects. I think it's hard to create a sort of business model around being an independent producer, but yeah, we, I mean, we have very, very wealthy people fund our projects all the time, you know? They're out there for sure. You just and have to find the really crazy rich people. Yeah, yeah right. we're, telling, we're telling the horror stories, but there are yeah. those people. There's a lot of also like, um, like incredibly wealthy people who do mm. it 
very in a almost secret manner, fun, fun like um, I forget which football team, but one of the football team owners, like the Minnesota Vikings, oh, that guy, he he finances tons of independent, you know, the small two hundred fifty thousand, five hundred thousand dollar movies. Sure. And those people are getting hit up from every industry, right. you know. So yeah. it's really hard to get to them, and then when you do, you have to present it and win them over, and just like anything else. But they're out there. You. We may have to wait for your microphone. Did you guys catch that? We can repeat yeah, it. How involved are we in the artistic choices? I think, for me personally, not speaking for everyone, for me personally, I think that I always want to support what the director wants first. I think that I definitely don't gravitate towards saying no first. I'm always like, yes, let's make it work. There are some times where logistically, or say they want to cast a complete unknown, uh, just for example, we did a film Higher Ground a few years ago that Vera Farmiga directed, and she wanted, uh, it was right after Winter's Bone, we had a, a lot of the Winter's Bone crew on our, our film, and she wanted 100% unknown actors. And it was about, okay, that's great, but then it will never get out there, so we ended up populating the cast with mostly Broadway actors. So it's all about like figuring out, like, okay, so what, what do you want with this actor that you're all excited about? And if we can't get them, like, what who can we find you that fits into that slot? So it's all about, for me, I think that I get involved in the artistic in the way of supporting, and I think that it's very rewarding. Hi, thank you. It's great to hear all of you, um, especially you, Alex. I just uh, produced, wrote, and starred in a short film with Frederick King. Frederick King was involved in oh, yeah. the project. He's from Blue Valentine. Um, he helped develop it, develop that film, and um, I'm going to be in Cannes next month with a feature film script that's related to the short. So my question is how to make the best of that experience, especially when I know exactly which producers I'd like to work with. Hmm. Um, that's, you know, I mean, I think you have to just don't be afraid to talk to people, and just. I mean, put yourself out there, try to build a consensus of people who will support you and sort of be helpful. Um, I mean, Cannes is a sort of bigger and more of a Wild West situation than something like Sundance or Toronto, but uh, we, we can have a sidebar conversation about it afterwards, but I don't know if you guys have any, uh, any thoughts. It's like learning to ask for things, you know, and how to ask yeah. for them, and, and to get, like, the guts up to go up to somebody and, and present something in the right way. Um, and be realistic, actually. If it's like, I don't know what size your script is or what it is, but find people who, who the first answer is not just going to be a straight no. Mm -hmm. And it's people who, like people come up to me all the time, but it's like ask me for something reasonable that's like, oh, this person actually has thought this through and there's some sort of like logic behind this. It's not just, you know, like a pie in the sky or sort of unreasonable thing because people will turn off pretty quickly. Yeah, you can do your research. I think it goes yes. hand in hand. Like the internet, there's so much information out there on these producers and what they've done, and you know you can see their body of work and uh, you know find similar projects to yours that these producers have done. And 
do your research. Yeah, and tailor, tailor those conversations to, even if it's like, I will IMDB in the bathroom real quick to be like, okay, I'm gonna talk about that. Like, but even if it's just knowing, knowing who you're talking to so that you can. Yeah. And assistants and junior agents, honestly, are sometimes even a better approach than the most important person in the room because they're more likely to get behind something and support it because it can be something that they can take ownership of rather than going straight to like, you know, somebody who's the actual decision maker at a company. They also read. Yes, they actually <laughs> will like read things. I think too that um, how you deliver your pitch, whether it's a, a short film that you've already made or whether it's a script. Uh, recently someone brought me a project and the pitch was so well crafted and so well thought through that it was just perfectly ready made and I was immediately interested in jumping on board. And I, I was just so blown away by it. So I think really making sure that the pitch you present is ready. And you and then I think this is going to be our last question. Sorry, everybody. I know you guys have a lot of questions. The type, this type of discussion makes for a lot more questions. <laughs> Hi. Um, so what? Um, advice you have for future filmmakers and directors, um, would you suggest that we should first team up with a producer that probably has done some things, or, and do you also completely discourage the director producing themselves, if mm. it's maybe a first project? Do whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no right answer, but... I do think if you are directing and producing, make sure you have someone else with you. Um, both because it's probably easy to lose perspective as a director a little bit and to see the bigger picture, but also there will be minutia details that the producers have to deal with that it's important that the director doesn't have to always have their head in all of that. So just make sure you have a team around you that's supporting you if you are in that position. You don't want to be the only director and the only producer in the project, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, Thank you guys all. I think I'm going to make a bold prediction and say that Alex's The Wolf Pack is going to be nominated this year for Best Documentary at the Oscars. <laughs> Matt, you will be back at the Oscars uh, again, and you'll probably have like a better tux this time. <laughs> uh, not that your tux was bad last time. <laughs> Olivia and Carly, you guys are going to really have an amazing response to your movies and um, can we know. go to the Oscars too? Yeah, can we? <laughs> <laughs> Our council They're ruining your car. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I think so. So, thank you guys all. Thank you. On the next episode of our show, we'll hear from costume designer Catherine Martin and Vogue editor-at-large Hamish Bowles about the glamour behind The Great Gatsby. That's next time on Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC.